For they will love you as you are. For they will carry you as you are. And all these worries can pass you by. For they will This week on the Queer Calling Podcast, I am delighted to talk to Reverend Lee Matthews. She's an openly queer associate pastor at St. Paul and St. Andrews on the Upper West Side of New York City. Reverend Matthews describes herself as called and committed to the queer liberation movement within the United Methodist Church. She taught English language arts in the Bronx public school system for about a decade before formally entering ministry. She currently lives in the Bronx with her wife, Rachel, and their preteen, Nora. For some context, the United Methodist Church, which is one of the largest Christian denominations with a membership of over 10 million Americans and an approximate 80 million globally, chose to uphold extremely anti-queer legislation at their general council in April of 2019, despite massive resistance from members and clergy alike. According to something called the Book of Discipline, some of the vocabulary upheld by the council includes phrases like, ceremonies that celebrate homosexual unions shall not be conducted by our ministers or churches, or self-avowed or practicing gays cannot be ordained by the UMC. This book goes even further to claim that the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with the Christian teaching. Yikes. In this episode, Reverend Matthews and I talk about her coming into her queer identity in the South, her journey from the Baptist tradition and into the United Methodist Church by way of Mississippi, San Francisco, and finally New York City. We talk about partnership, parenting, faith, and resistance, as well as the abundance of joy. As a content warning, we cover subjects of homophobia and loss, particularly loss of family and church. If these topics might feel triggering to you, please, please wait for our next episode. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. My name's Keisha. I am a former student and former employee of Union Theological Seminary, where we met. Um, and I would love for you to introduce yourself to those who are listening right now. Hi. My name is Reverend Lee Matthews. I serve as a pastor at St. Paul and St. Andrew United Methodist Church in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. I use pronouns she, her, hers, and um, I identify as a queer and beloved child of God. <laughs> do you want me to refer to you as Reverend by your name? How would you like to be called? How would you like to be remembered by the people that are listening to you? I think you could just call me Lee. Great. So I want to I want to push you more about how you identify. Um, tell us more about how you identified, you know, spiritually and um, within your faith practice, uh, and then also your queer identifier, if you if you want to share. Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, spiritually, I identify as a very Baptisty Methodist. Um, I was raised in South Mississippi and. Um, reared in a Southern Baptist church. Um, and so no matter what, that is my foundation. And I found my way accidentally into the Methodist church and denomination um, and found that I fell in love with the theology. Mm -hmm. um, but, but my roots are most definitely um, in the South and in the Baptist faith. And my kind of branches are in the Methodist tradition. I love that. I didn't, I don't think I knew that actually. Um, wonderful. Tell us about how you identify um, within your queer identities as well. You know, this has evolved over time, like so many, <laughs> I, I think, right? I think that's the real lesson. Um, when I first came out, um, well, when I came out to another person, right? Um, I identified as gay and that made the most sense. But really I have come to understand about myself that I came out as gender nonconforming um, much, much earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and so that really was the backbone of, of my queer identity. What was, um, was gender nonconforming. And again, that was in Southern Mississippi, and, yeah. and uh, you know that was 
I suppose when I chopped all my hair off, um, it was in the seventh grade and I never looked back. And the, the pushback I got from those around me um, made me quite aware if I wasn't before, just how different I was. Um, but it wasn't really synced up to my sexuality for a long while. Um, I, I came out at 17 publicly um, in all facets of my life um, where I had in drip syndrome before then. Um, and again, I claimed gay. But over the years um, and with kind of expansion and understanding, I, I, I choose the umbrella term. I, I choose queer um, because I just, um, I'm most resonate with other and with different and with strange. Um, and that's gender, sexuality, and whatever else is down the line. I identify as queer too for very similar. It feels comfortable to not have yeah. lines. Um, if you don't mind, I'm really curious about, you know, you, you phrased it, I came out publicly at 17, and I'm also mindful that this was in Mississippi. And if you want to share that story, yeah. Um, well, I came to understand that I was different very early. I would say six, yeah. seven, eight years old, right? <clears throat> and, but I didn't have any terminology for that. Then when I was around 14, 15, um, I became aware of what that was um, and kind of put it in the box of gay. Um, yeah. And again, that was to a very few amount of people and to my journals always, first and foremost, <laughs> dear diary, let me tell you some things that I haven't told the world. Um, and then, you know, that group kind of expanded uh, with my trust and also with just kind of where I moved in the world. Um, but then the kind of public birthing of, of my queer identity to my to all of my family, my parents, my church, that happened at 17. And I, it's pretty easy to talk about um, when it was because I chose dramatically always July 4th, Independence Day. I mean, come on, it was destined to go badly. Um, but I chose right before we were going to a July 4th, uh, like picnic barbecue kind of thing at my grandparents' house. I sat my parents down because they were both in the same place at one time. And that wasn't, that was a little more rare um, just in our goings and comings as a family. Mm -hmm. And I had already told my two sisters, um, I'm in a middle kid, one above and one below. Um, but really telling my parents was uh, foundational, right? And, and it would be that real shift. So, you know, I came out and I was 17. I was going to the college in my hometown, but living at home. And, um, and it didn't go very well. I mean, I don't think that's any great surprise, right? Um, but it was certainly to me at the time. And within, you know, days and weeks of coming out to my parents, um, it was clear that home was not going to be a place that I could stay. So I lost that uh, security and I was asked to leave. And then within days of that, um, I sought out the church, which up to that point, other than my home, was the most important place uh, that I, yeah, that I went. And, um, and I was told by my pastor that there was no place there for me. Mm -hmm. um, not if I was going to live um, as a lesbian right now that, the, you know, the politics of that time were such that the, the pushback to queer identity was very much this, you are you're yes. correct in your in in your identity, right? You know who you are. That yes, you're you're gay, but it will be your burden to bear, right? It is your sin to suppress. So, like I was told, you know, like kleptomania or alcoholism, it was that thing, right? That I had to work against. And so, since I wasn't going to do that, I lost my church. And so, though that was in quick succession, and then That's I was 17. at at seventeen, right? Right. And so what happened then was just kind of the best of times and the worst of times that were coinciding. Uh, I couldn't even believe that these things were happening at the same time, right? Because in addition to 
um, all of this loss, you know, at friend after friend and mentor after mentor um, abandoning me. I was also falling in love and absolutely on fire yep. with my identity and with like, oh my God, this makes sense. And, um, and so all of that was lighting up and opening up while all these other things were closing down. And, and so it was a tumultuous spiritual whiplash time for, for quite a long while. Um, and I became estranged with my family for a good number of years, um, more than was right in my heart. And, um, it was quite a burden to bear. Thank you for sharing that. I think, you know, I think what's striking to me about these conversations that I'm having and obviously in the process, the reflection that happens about my own decision-making skills and journey and like you know, God bless the decision-making skills of a 17 year old, you know, you know, it's just a different brain at that. Yeah. Um, you know, I I think I did the opposite. I went as far away as I could. Uh, so Mm -hmm. I left home at 18 and I, I, I traveled 9,000 miles before that choice. And I, instead of coming out to them soon, I, I really wanted to make sure I was gay. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh shit, like, how am I going to tell them? And test that phase theory before they throw it on me. Exactly. And that's, and that was my project. Um, and similarly, you know, I just remember it, it just felt tumultuous, like the whole situation, it just felt full of this joy that felt like angels were singing in my head every Mm -hmm. time I did something that was affirming of my identity and my sexuality and my gender. Um, You know, when I sort of let go any kind of societal pressure and I just started like walking to my own beat, it was both joyful and full of dread without any of the words, right? So like this was before we had all of these words like I didn't really you know I don't think I even knew queer I think Mm -hmm. I I was sort of like really confused about a lot of things um you know I didn't I didn't have gen you know we we just we didn't have tv we just had like these whispers (laughs) yeah like you know dread (laughs) it was just like the media of dread for gay people and yeah it was full of joy at the same time and so it yeah it also felt right so I guess my follow-up question to you is you describe this tumultuous period that feels very resonant to me you get asked to leave both the places where that are home for you and both the places that are safe and sacred to you as a as a young person and both are traumatic right so being asked to leave I mean don't let me speak for you but I mean being asked to leave the church is is no small deal no no it was it was monumental um and you know that that's the thing is church for me was everything Mm -hmm. It, it wasn't it isn't you know, it certainly wasn't then um, a place I go on Sundays, and even it wasn't a place I go on Sundays and Wednesdays. It was a, it was all of my community. Mm-hmm. It was all the people who had raised me, and I I was just adrift, you know. Yeah. And um, and also it was you know small town spread, so it wasn't as though something came. This had to be discovered on one day, and then I could kind of survive the wave of it and then move beyond it just happened over and over and over relentless loss and relentless confrontation um so that you couldn't really settle you know um and find any grounding it just all felt topsy-turvy you know and I, I, I love the way you describe that because I, I look back at pictures. We were just looking back because our <laughs> daughter was interested and in like, oh, she found the actual scrapbook with real photos, you know, and, and, and yeah. um, she was pulling them out like, oh my God. And I am a wisp of a person. I began, you know, the coming out process and I was probably like 115 pounds. And then I lost 15 pounds within a couple of weeks. Like I just, yeah, I mean, that kind of just 
puts into physical form what was happening on the inside. It was just, there was just a loss monumental in every way. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, in, in, in my life in New York, I think sometimes what I feel struck by um, queer narratives is that, uh, you know, we can, we can identify the trauma of losing family or, you know, homophobic responses to who we are in our family settings, but there isn't a lot around the loss of church or uh, as, as traumatic, right? Like as something that is equally worthy of despair, but that is no small thing. And it always strikes me when that is brushed aside because I, I, there's something inside that I'm like, oh no, that was, that was big for that person. Um, Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was, you know, sitting in the uh, church with my pastor. I, this is where, you know, I was to go, I had received the call to ministry. I had been affirmed by this church and I had been affirmed in defiance of a Southern Baptist ban on women in ministry. I had been affirmed in spite of that, right. Brought up into leadership. I was preaching and teaching since I was a kid and this pastor had stood by me and forged away with me, uh, met with me regularly to entertain my theological questions and quandaries. I mean, this was, this was my pastor, right? This was my advocate and to see within him his own limitations, right? Um, And then to feel that in the church itself, a church which had prided itself and as they well should have of being racially integrated, right? That's why they were formed. They they broke apart to be a place where black people could worship alongside white people. And here there was this oppressive ceiling that I couldn't have foreseen from this body until it was me, right? Um, and so there's no place for you here. There's no place for you in ministry. Those words couldn't have been more shocking to my soul, to my very core, right? And, and what gets messed up, I think, and certainly what happened to me is that you hear those words of authority and believe them to be God's yeah, and not the churches, not the institutions, not an individual in leadership position. Right. And so that is the work. That's the spiritual work to disentangle God from the church. And that took years. This ties perfectly into my follow-up question, which is, so you you talk about being, you know, having the call at an early age and, and being groomed in that way. So tell us about your journey ultimately to pursue the call and what that mm. felt like and what that looked like. Well, initially I was called by none other than Ms. Barbara Streisand. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> now that was not personally, she doesn't know she called me, <laughs> but she did. Oh my God. She did. <laughs> I you know, I just had this disposition for all things spiritual and all things churchy, all things biblical, sacred texty. I couldn't get enough of it, right? And where other of my peers were like, oh God, do we have to go back to church? I was like, first one there, last one to leave. So happy place, right? Mm-hmm. And for all of it, really, not just not just the worship services, I, you know, really the community building and the justice work. And I just loved all of it. Um, but I, I was watching Yentl, as one does, when I was a preteen. And I had my feet up on the TV screen, you know, leaning back, because it was one of those that was like a piece of furniture at that point. And she started, you know, searching. This character just started searching and trying to find a place, wanting to study these scriptures outside of her gender expectations and her sexual expectations and in a community that would not allow it, right? So everything had to be concealed. And yet there was just this buoyancy to this character and such fight, not to mention just all the layers of queerness in this narrative that I obviously resonated with, but had no real clue, right? Um, But I was like, that's it, right? That's it. And so I kind of felt this, this voice like, follow, you know? And then it was affirmed through the years by this 
phenomenal community uh, and, and this church, you know, who really drew me out and supported me each step of the way. And, and then when I, when I kind of hit that wall, when I came out, I went on a grand detour because I believed what I was told, right? Um, I, I thought that the ministry door official was closed. So, you know, not long after that, um, Rachel, my wife now, um, but we ran, I mean, we ran, of course, where do you run from South Mississippi to San Francisco? And so we lived there for three years and we both went to school. Oh yes. Oh yes. You know, and I kind of healed. I did a lot of healing and I did a lot uh, for about a year and a half. I wasn't, I couldn't go into any church. And then eventually I, I wandered in and did some pew hopping. You know, I did not want to be identified. I did not want to talk to people. You yep. know what I mean? Yeah. And so I kind of did that for a bit. And then we moved to New York in 2001. And so that was three years after that. And I started attending church here. And that's when I accidentally went to a Methodist church. I just went to a church that I was told had you know, great, challenging sermons, social justice, and a queer presence. And so I thought, great. Oh, and it was like a seven minute walk from my apartment, even better. And so quickly, I got drawn into this community um, in more substantial ways. I couldn't quite hide my my nature at that time. Um, and I was, you know, doing a lot of other work, right? Reconciliation work and my family, the foremost. And so by befriending people of that church, Christ United Methodist and the pastors, they kind of pulled me into a conversation that started and then kept going about trusting that call, right? Mm -hmm. And and what my gifts could, how my gifts could be used in the in the church. Now, listen, I'll be clear. I had no idea when I walked into that church or when I even decided to start the Methodist ordination process. I had no idea that I was entering into another denomination that was closed to the LGBTQIA community. So I naively trusted this expression of the body of Christ. And I naively took the word for the, the pastors that I could be of use. And, you know, I took it right now as I entered and began to learn, I thought, oh, my God, I have done it again. I have ended up in this denominational argument, but I didn't understand as a Baptist that there's this superstructure in the United Methodist Church, right? Where there's polity and doctrine, et cetera, that actually controls the local expression to some extent. And so, yeah, I backwards ended up in the process. And then once I realized it, I had a choice, right? And so there I am back in another therapist's couch saying, what am I going to do right here? I cannot believe I'm back here. But the choice was kind of to figure out what would be soul death, leaving this church, right? And leaving another denomination in this way or not following God and privileging the institution again. And so with that kind of in my mind, I made the choice like, well, F you, I'm not going to be kicked out of another church, right? If I'm going to, mm -hmm. I am going to, I am here. This is, this is my community that I claim it. Right. And yeah. right. So I kind of doubled down and entered the process in a defiant activist way. And mm -hmm. I determined that I would go through and never conceal always be honest, answer everything on the up and up 100%. And if I ever got pushback from that, then I would, that would be my no. And that would be me determining that, not anybody else. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened from there. So it's kind of a longer narrative from that point, no, but that. that was the decision. So I have some follow-up questions. So up on a personal note, you mentioned uh, your wife, Rachel, going to San Francisco with you. So did you both leave Mississippi together? We did. We did. We yeah. met in Mississippi. We, as it turns out, we grew up like 30 minutes apart. She was born in a very, very, very small town on a farm uh, in Wiggins, Mississippi. And I was from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, a small town. And yeah, we met at the University of Southern Mississippi. And then we got married 
this is the crazy part. We got married seven months after we met. And this is what happens when you kick your kids out of their house so that you don't have parents to be like, are you sure that that's the best decision to make? <laughs> but we've been married since January 8th, 1998. So there, there it worked out. It was the right. It worked decision. out. It was the right decision. It was definitely <laughs> the right decision. Um, and we have faced the world together and grown up together. If that is not a story of hope, I don't truly know what is. Okay, so wow, that uh, shook me a little bit. So you you have this partner that faces everything with you together, and then you told no by the place that loves you two times, um, and then you dabble your toes, and you're older, and you're you're you know you you mentioned that you're pursuing healing in at any way that you can in the safer town as much as you can. And, and then, you know, the community of the church that you're in asks you to follow, but this time you're older, you're not mm -hmm. alone. Um, and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're now you're ready for all of it. Right. It's, so Seemingly that's such a great, great question. Right. I mean, Oh God. Um, well, I had my rerouting, my kind of detour um, was to follow kind of my, my skill base, right? And to teach. And so I determined that I would follow my call my own way outside of the bounds of the church. Um, but in my mind, it would be ministry. And so I was teaching public school kids in the Bronx. Um, and I did that for a decade. And you know, uh, in underserved um, schools that really were intentionally targeted for closure by the New York City public schools. Um, and I, it was a really good test case to see kind of if I could do the work that I believe is holy work um, and it, but, but be a part from the motivation of that work explicitly, right? Be disconnected from the church. And over time, over years, it became clear that I couldn't. Um, and the best way I can describe it is just an unsettledness. Mm. I was just so, um, I felt as if I wasn't doing something that I knew I needed to do and that I could do. Um, and it was just this, unsettled soul um, that I knew the only way at least to to quiet it was to listen to it, right? Um, and that very beginning step was really not about ordination. It was about going to Union Theological Seminary. And I had determined at age 15 when I read Frederick Beekner that that was the place I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. that I didn't want to go to seminary anywhere else. That mm -hmm. was the place. That was where I wanted to ask my questions. Um, and that was a, that was a total pipe dream, right? Who knew then that I was going to end up living in freaking New York City? That's even that's absurd. So the fact that then I end up in New York City and I can apply, that was a family decision. And Rach and I really made that together. I, honestly, she was like, I don't want to listen to it anymore, right? I think <laughs> you you have to go to seminary and we will make this work. It will somehow work, even though it just really didn't seem like it was going to. And so we, you know, we determined, you know, as these very organized type A queer persons that we are, that we were going to have a hypothetical child, at, which we also felt called to. And then when this hypothetical child was five years old and entered the public schools, so as alleviating so much childcare expense and pressure and demand, then I would go to seminary and I would pivot out of teaching and into whatever was next. That was the leap of faith to go to school and to study. That was my gentle move. So that's, that was the big really jump. And then the ordination piece was after I was at seminary when I was realizing that the world was much larger than even I thought in coming to seminary. Um, and, and so those relationships and the professors and the learning that I did at Union really 
um, helped it helped ground me so that I didn't feel as shifty entering something that I knew would be a battle. I love how much in so many ways, your story is a story of hope that keeps throwing little plot twists at you. And you, you know, with in this current day of 2021, there's, there's just um, an aura of hope that people can kind of gather from both the pursuit of your call. And also, you know, I think for me as a, a baby gay, you know, I, I just, I remember being like, I don't even know if I'm ever going to find another gay person, you know, like a, a person like, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know the word gay, you know, I was sort of like, will I ever be out? Um, it, yeah. Outside, outside my bedroom, right? Like I was sort of like, yeah, you no. Know, um, will anyone other than my diary know? Um, yes. You know, um, and I think it's so hopeful to hear stories of people, you know, that made it both personally, right? Like you're with your partner, you have a kid, you know, you you made a plan, you stuck to the plan. Um, <laughs> you know, and you, you listen to your call. So I guess I have a segue question. Yeah. Um, and my segue question is, so given, you know, so to me, it sounds like you had, you had two experiences that mirror each other in oppositional ways. And one was being turned away from the place that you originally pursued your call and sort of hearing no, but it was not from God. Uh, it was from right. institutional homophobia, right? Um, and then deciding to listen to your call again and looking at the people that might say no, but deciding to pursue it regardless as yourself. Yeah. Um, given that, what would you say, and you know, and you've gone to union obviously, which is um, a special seminary is the understatement of the year for that one, but we'll call it that. Um, you know, what would you say your theology is for, and, and for people listening, if you, you can say it in sort of theological high theology terms, but I would love for you to break it down as well? Oh, God, isn't that the question? Um, you know, I think the way I understand my theology is in terms of breach and repair. Um, and I know that that comes out of my experience, right? I know that that is not an exhaustive um, or all-inclusive frame, but it's the way that I come to an understanding about what I think God is up to, and I think how I understand my place in the project mm -hmm. that God is up to. And so, um, you know, there is this breach, there is a divide, there is brokenness, right, um, in the world that we enter, and then in everything we touch, you know, um, it's just um, horrifying to consider all the harm we do to one another and to the earth. And the placement of the divine, I feel, is this continual reaching in and, and um, into those kind of holes, into the divides, into the pits, right, and uh, repairing. And so the, what I have seen personally that kind of informs all of this understanding um, is nothing less than miracle, total transformation um, that I can only attribute to the power of God, right? So the, I mean, even just in my own story, which is just totally limited, but it is what it is. I, my relationship with my family is um, unlike anything I would have believed it to be from 1998 when all of that went down, right? Um, 
we are incredibly close and mm-hmm. um and we are different and yeah. i would say that right we we you know a lot of emphasis is sometimes placed on reconciliation and forgiveness and i just think that we uh, you could say those things about us but i think that um we've been repaired because we were remade we got we got another chance at this and we kept trying again and again and again um, to do better um, by each other and for each other, right? Um, the pastor who turned me away from my church came back years later um, and asked if he wow. could speak to me and told me he was wrong and that um, it was the biggest mistake in his lifetime of ministry. And yeah. if there was a heaven that he would be glad to see me and Rachel there. So, you know, I just, the way that I think, um, first of all, imagining the, the spiritual gumption and the courage to sit across from somebody that you have harmed so greatly and that you have also loved so deeply to, to carry both of those things is, a, is kind of the way I see um, our potential, right? So we, we, as individuals and as communities, um, can do great harm, but we can also sit with that, be accountable to it, and choose to do something differently. Um, and that power, I think, you know, can only come from the divine. Okay. Okay, I'm going to move on to questioning you um, in your professional capacity. Um, sure. Okay. So in 2019, the United Methodist Church, which for secular people means nothing, but it is one of the biggest denominations in the United States and probably globally. It has about 13 million membership in the US, I think. Um, and, 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 And you can add to this story. My layman's understanding of this story is that they come to this fork at the tunnel where they have to decide whether they are going to be affirming or whether they are not going to be affirming towards queer people. That's right. And you are at that fork yelling about it. Um, uh, I want to know what happens, but before I ask you what happens, I'm going to play a clip of a sermon that you gave, a testimony that you give right, in my understanding, right after. Uh, so this is March 2019, okay? Right. I made it in, and Jenna following close behind because she had vowed to stay with me wherever I might go. And by the time that we got there, all the others had been shut out and this delegation demonstration was quelled. I was completely befuddled. I was stunned. Everybody was back in their seats. Voting machines were in people's hands and the presiding bishop was guiding people to the next point of business. What fresh new hell was this? I asked myself. How could they go on with business as if nothing had happened? Hundreds of people, hundreds of people were banging on the walls and the partitions. Open the doors! Stop the harm! It echoed through the rafters. You couldn't not hear it. But inside, the conference went on like nothing. Like nothing had happened. So I ran straight to Penn's, to Vicky, to the New York delegation table. And when I got there, we piled together. We were shaking and crying. We were distraught. When our legs gave out, we just sat down on the floor. Only then did it dawn on me, as I watched bureaucracy and institutionalism string roll over human collateral and justice denied, that they were just going to go on. How could this be? A stage full of bishops, 900 voting delegates, moving on like this spiritual rupture had not occurred. 
And at that point, when the United Methodist denomination chose its path forward, the church, hundreds of observers, the church was locked outside the doors. That's so argument many, too. There are many things in that that I was both struck by emotionally and I had questions about, but um, I am mindful of that. I would not have known about the UMC debacle had I not been working at Union at that time specifically. And so I would love if you could just, you know, uh, give us a, a quick idea of what General Assembly was what and what happened that day. Mm -hmm. Well, the long and the short of it is that we are governed by a book of discipline. Even though we were envisioned originally as a non-doctrinal denomination. But this book of discipline has become so lauded and so powerful, so much an authority in the tradition um, that into it um, in, in the 70s was injected this corrosive unjust statement that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. And to back that up, there was a mechanism to rid um, homosexuals, mm -hmm. right? Those self-avowed and performing, um, okay. those ridiculous terms, um, from the church, right? And, and that specifically was, um, you know, in leadership position. So decades of hard work uh, had been happening. And, you know, you can, what I have learned, um, especially because my life and my path towards ministry intersected this tremendous movement um, of breadth and depth and intellect and soul. And so I, you know, it just so happened that I crossed its path at kind of the perfect moment so that here in New York Annual Conference, you know, I had been legally married because I was able to be legally married. And so then the oppressions could be placed on me because I was exposed and there was a mechanism to, to use against me, right? So, um, so it just so happened that those two things coincided, but the, the activist movement and the inclusive church movement pushed so hard up against the institution that it stopped all proceeding from happening at the general conference of 2016. And no business could be done because we were flooded on the floor. We completely took over um, and were prohibiting any business from getting done. So the bishops had to go off. They met among themselves. They came back and put it to the, um, to the body that two things would happen. One, there would be a special general conference about and only about what they termed human sexuality. And there would be a commission to try and figure out a way forward to propose what could be decided at that gathering. So after 2016, those two things happened. They, they started and then that gathering that you're referencing was at the, it was in 2019. Um, so the entire denomination gets together to decide one and only one and only one thing, right? And that is to continue oppression of queer people or not to. Mm -hmm. And they decided by vote to double down on the oppression. And they increased the mechanisms and they increased the scope by which they could identify queer persons to then purge them from the church. Um, trials, fines. So that's the only thing. The the two real ways that this happens is those who are serving as clergy and those who marry people. So mm -hmm. it really is kind of uh, targeted to clergy. But then the you can imagine that um, that queer persons would not, in the least, find comfort, security, uh, or solace in a community where that was happening. So. So they 
specifically, I just want to, they specifically decide that queer people, A, cannot get married so that the church does not want to recognize this union as holy, which, you know, there's, there's messaging around, right? Like, so mm -hmm. we can talk to death as queer people about the legitimacy of marriage, but there is something spe specifically sinister um, mm -hmm. about uh, a church deciding that you are not holy, that this union cannot be. Um, but, then, but then they also say that you specifically cannot be ordained. In your mind, I can read into that. In your mind, what is the impact? What, what is that about? And then what is the importance then on the reverse that queer people decide to be ordained regardless? Well, so from the standpoint of those that would prefer to rid the church of queer folks and queer leaders specifically, let's say. So I was listening to this podcast the other day that was talking about what happened with integration of the public schools. And when federal law happened and those schools integrated, um, the assumption was, I, we as Black people trust you white people with our kids and white people would then return saying, we trust you Black people with our kids, right? So, but this did not happen. There was no reciprocity. In other words, what people don't talk about and what I was re remembering and learning from this podcast was that the black teachers who had been so important, so foundational to the black students in those schools were stripped of their leadership, right? right. So that then you had black students who were only seeing, only knowing, only coming into relationship right. with yeah. white teachers, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you have just the, that teacher is not in my community, that teacher doesn't understand my values, that teacher doesn't even understand what all has just gone on with the process of integration, right? Um, but then the reverse is true, that those white students never see black leaders. They never see master teachers that are anything other than white. Um, and I think this is the point in queer leadership also, is that it is intentional to take away the witness of a queer person. It is intentional to strip authority, to strip leadership, to, to strip influence, um, from a queer person, right? When, when what you want to do is to demonize that, right? When what you want to do is to other that, then basically you don't just settle the church and the bureaucracy in this present moment, but you forestall any growth. You forestall any future that there are relationships, there are exposures, there are expansions of ideas, right? You kind of cap intentionally the relationship building that could be the learning that could be and say no so i just i i deeply want people to hear this so in your mind and in your heart what does it mean to you that you decide to be a reverend despite this denomination specifically targeting your ability to be ordained you know i I am reminded daily of the importance of having queer pastors be visible and active and working. And it truly is something that happens on a day-to-day -day for me mm -hmm. as a queer pastor, right? On the one hand, I, I just had an exit interview with a trans man who was serving as our intern and youth director. Um, and when we were thanking each other at the end, he responded, just how grateful he was to be able to find his way beside and, and along with another queer pastor who had tried to figure it out and make their way. It is vitally important that we have mentors, that we have fellow travelers to understand ourselves, right? Now that's collegially. But then the work I do on day to day, right? I, our bishop always kind of says this thing that I totally agree with, which is interesting. And he appoints you to a community, right? Not necessarily the people of the church as is, 
right? So I'm, a, I'm appointed to St. Paul and St. Andrew, but I serve the community, right? All of that community, those that come in the building, those that do not come in the building, those that identify as church members, those that do not, right? And this I really resonate with. And here's, here's what I would say. I provide pastoral care to the folks that I minister to, right? That's one of the parts of my portfolios. But the people that I provide pastoral care to are not just the ones who are in the strictest geography of that community, right? Because of who I am and how I live and because of my witness and because I am a queer pastor that makes myself available, I give pastoral care to people all around the country. And they come to me because they know me or somebody said something to somebody else. So I am right now working with somebody in Indiana who's a preteen and coming to understand themselves as queer. I'm working with a family in Mississippi who is working through a child who's transitioning there and cannot find those spiritual tools and resources around them in that community. I'm working with a transplant from Alabama here. So in other words, the impacts are monumental, mind-blowing, right. monumental. You cannot quantify that, right? And 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 what it means to go into a conversation at you know seeking pastoral care from somebody that you don't have to you don't have to enter the conversation with me the way I entered the ordination process. Yes, defiantly, defensively, uh, ashamedly, right? You you enter it as your full self just like anybody else has a right to do, right? Maybe you need pastoral care because, you know, you're not getting along with your mom. Does it really have anything to do with your queer identity? Maybe not, but maybe, right? I mean, it's just part of a whole. Um, and so having a, an understanding could, could not be overstated. It is vital. It is vital. We're going over time. Do you have five to 10 more minutes for this? Sure. Okay. So I have two questions. Um, in my experience, um, both with myself and with people that I know, you know, um, we as queer people have this, you know, there's this deep place that our awareness comes from, right? And and uh, there's there there's joy that you experience that tells you you're right, right? So there's there's all these like other places of confirmation that we have access to. Um, those of us that are fortunate enough to stay out um, that we have access to, um, but sometimes parents don't have access to those things, right? It takes them. Yes a little bit longer, um, especially, you know, some of us aren't partnered when we come out, right? So it's this like invisible thing that they have to contend with. And, you know, um, parents that are part of church communities, all they have access to are the pastor and what they say, right? And so right. you have a homophobic pastor that it just really clouds the ability, I think, or I have lived through parents' abilities to believe that joy or the confirmation that their child is sort of saying, no, I'm correct, like, this is who I am, right. um, wrong, right? Like children often, you know, after the, the, the bad parts, um, you you kind of come to this place where you're like, no, this is not wrong, right? Um, right. In your dream of this position that you you get to be in, and you have, you know, um, what do you say to parents who are, you know, what what is your position with parents about that? Um, who sort of can't don't have access to the level of sureness that their queer child might have? And how do you talk to them within the constructs of faith, right? Within the tenets of um, Christianity that are important to them? Yeah, how do you talk to people? Well, on the one hand, I think it is 
really hard for parents, especially right at the beginning of a coming out process in any form for them to isolate what they're responding to. So is it about the queerness? Is it about the kid? Or is it about everybody else? Right? And that means the expectations of everybody else and the pressures and the, you know, the what ifs and who's going to think and right on the one hand. And on the other, I think a major portion of parental response usually is fear-based, trying to negatively predict the future about what will happen on this queer kid's journey if it comes to fruition. So it's battling fears that some are legitimate, right? And expectations, some are legitimate. Mm -hmm. And then a whole lot of both of those things are not. And so uh, the conversation needs to start and be in and end with the kid, right? This is, the, this is their experience. This is their joy, their truth, their journey. And so the idea that something will happen at a farther time that might harm that person is missing the very important point that something could harm them right now if they're not believed if they're not loved if they're not surrounded by support right if they are left alone to do that work if they're left alone to find those supports that's harm in this moment that is real it's not even negatively predicted or imagined for some time farther um, so I think fundamentally it is to center the kid's actual life and experience over the worries and the expe expectations and, and imagined negative pushback, right? Which most of the time, that's what people are actually responding to and not the kid, yeah. not the kid. Um, because to open your mouth and to say those words and to claim a piece of yourself has taken so much effort, so much energy, so much trust, and that is a gift. And so just kind of reframing that as a, do you see what has happened? Do you see the beauty in what has been given to you? Your kid has told you something truly important to them. Now, what are you going to do with it? Because that's gonna tell your kid something truly and deeply important. That's what you need to focus on, right? So I think that that's the work we all have to do. And I'm telling you that as a parent too, right? It's like, keep your freaking eye on the ball, right? Respond to what you're actually talking about. And that is really hard to do, most especially when the parent hits what they perceive as a limit of the wisdom and advice that they can bestow on their kid. If they have no experience in that, they feel that they cannot parent out of it. That is bullshit. And we all understand that. Like right now, I am ill-prepared as the parent of a 12-year-old to parent an 18-year-old. But I'm going to parent the years in between that's going to get me ready, right? So I, it, we are never prepared in the way we wish. But that doesn't mean we stop our love and we stop our support and we stop our own growth, right? That's just not a parenting choice that we have a right to. And so that has absolutely no biblical message in it, <laughs> except for it has all the biblical message because it prioritizes this kid's truth, right? Um, and to, to first and foremost, love. And that's what it's all about. And that's the most crucial response you can give in those moments of a, of a claiming in front of you. And what a beautiful thing to be gifted with. Mm -hmm. And then my last and final question is, what is a sacred text passage that has grounded you? I would love for it to be as a queer person, but as a person, it's, you know, an all-encompassing. Yeah. It's fine. Um, yeah. Well, it's funny because, um, you know, it's like finding your Bible within the Bible, yeah. as it were, right? And when 
we talked about earlier, you know, the process of kind of coming into your identity and understanding your full self and, and how that is a process, right? Um, for me, finding my sacred text was also a process. So right in the beginning of things, I really was like, um, I really resonated with like Galatians three, like in Jesus, there, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no male or female. There is no slave nor free. Um, and while that portion of text does matter to me, I found it really hurtful um, and dismissive of my individual and unique identity, the, the identity that was causing me harm, but also that I was finding power in and community in, and honestly, who I was finding Jesus in. So to dismiss this very unique identity as there is, there is this erasure in Jesus, um, I had trouble with. And so I kind of um, pulled back over the years from that. And I clung to a little more um, Psalm 139, right? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, right? And also this idea that the divine has knitted me inside a womb and knows all of my parts, right? Even before I know them all, and I could be 81 and still coming into some queer piece of myself, right? Um, and that's not to be feared, it's to be embraced, you know, with joy. And and there is also such power in Psalm 139, I think, in this like pre-parent parent God that our earthly parents do their very best. And I say this as one myself, and we fail and we screw up, right? But there is the divine mother, there is the divine parent who knows everything and loves all of who you are. That I go back to time and time again, to not just, you know, center myself, but also to to connect with the parts of myself that I think are unlovable, unrepairable, unredeemable, even still, right? Whether they're connected to my queerness or not, Absolutely. those bits, right, um, that are truly loved. And I think, no, I can't not answer this question with a Romans 8 because <laughs> I, I go, I you see what happens when you ask somebody this, but <laughs> I just, I always go back to to this one that nothing can separate us from the love of God I mean nothing and I love the list that comes after it you know unlike the Galatians 3 the list makes this one just come alive because it starts with life and death and if life and death can't separate you from love of God that's pretty intense right so you can put a lot of things on that list after life and death and angels and rulers and things past and present and future I mean nothing is going to separate you from this abounding and unlimited love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus. It's ours to claim. It's nobody else's to take away. And that that's my Bible within the Bible. I love how you lit up for that question. And then you almost, you had to say, like, stop yourself from going on. About <laughs> and then there's this other one right. that and I need to tell you about. And I think, you know, um, you know, this is the power of having uh, ordained queer people and then asking them the question, you know, what, what texts ground you because there is an abundance of it and there's not this like shortage or like single three steps that people keep referencing, you know, there's just all of it. So thank you. I'll say one thing about that. And I know we're so way out of time, but I'll <laughs> say, um, Reverend Althea Spencer Miller, who oh, yeah. is, uh, she's just a phenom, right? And teaches New Testament at Drew and is somebody who has gotten me through um, as a colleague and a friend. Um, but once she was asked a question um, in preparation of General Conference 2019, she and I were on a panel together and she was asked like, you know, where in the Bible um, is, is the queer experience or the queer individual. Um, and she said, you know, people go looking for text, right. To, to find, to pinpoint the exact thing that would, would mimic what we understand to be a queer person in the text. And she said, queer people are all over the text, right. It's anywhere that they, 
that there is somebody who is dismissed and thought to be less than, right? It's the widow, it's the foreigner, it's the, you know, the child, the tax collector. It's read on to that who is being rejected and thought less than in the moment, right? That is the queer experience. And then where was Jesus in relationship to that person, that community? Right there, right? And so that's what we do. That's what, that's how we kind of reframe that biblical narrative and claim it as our own. We're all over it because Jesus is loving us all over it. Thank you so much for doing this with me and agreeing to do this with me. I mean, this has gone about half an hour over and that was because, you know, there's just no point at which I wanted to stop. So thank you for taking so much time. I, I really appreciate it. And I think it is going to be appreciated. So. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad that I got to spend time with you next time. I'm going to have all the questions and you have all the answers. That's what <laughs> I think we'll do next time. We'll be like, no. it'll be season two in reverse. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I have all the Bible answers as quick as you do, but you know, we'll see. I'll try. I do, I do have a seminary degree. I, I do have that. Yes, you do. Damn so. it. Claim it. <laughs> okay. Um, wow. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. Special thanks go out to Ian Reese and Robin Reese, who are not related, and Megan Taylor for production and editing. Thank you for making this podcast happen at all. Thank you to Scott Sprunger and Katilao Mabindio for being my thought partners for this project and in life in general. Thank you so much to Sue Young Park for your guidance. The music was written and performed by Jen and Natalia Quadra. And as always, this work is for and dedicated to queer people everywhere, especially to those who cannot or never had the chance to come out safely as themselves. You have always been divinely made.